welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast, located in Beulahville, North Carolina. Our mission at Pathway Church is to turn struggles into stories of God's grace, redemption, and power. We do this by accepting the person of Christ, actualizing the character of Christ, and announcing the message of Christ. If you will, you can go ahead and turn with me to the book of Second uh, Timothy. So good to be with you here this morning. Thank y'all as always. I am so humbled that you have chosen to worship with us here. And I thank y'all for giving this time not just to the church or, or your attention just to me, but to giving this time to the Lord. Amen. This morning, I, I had something on my mind this week, and I'm not sure. Are we going to be able to play it? All right. I want to play this uh, a clip uh, from this old song. The, ru- the, the recording's kind of rough, so it's done in 1909. And it's one y'all are probably familiar with, and I have some, some fond memories of it myself. Um, but, and, and then I'll give you some explanation. So let's go ahead and play that if we can. tell you the first time I ever heard it my I used to go stay with my grandfather all the time and uh, he would be mowing the grass or he would be working and he couldn't sing a lick but he would sing that song every now and again you know and if any of you know and I I went down a rabbit hole this week just kind of studying this and but if any of you know uh, what that is it's as classified as as a negro spiritual and these are songs that were written uh, generally by slaves during the, uh, during the times in which there was, you know, mostly during, like, right before the, Revol- uh, the Civil War. And there were some, and, and like I say, I went down a rabbit hole, so I've read a lot of stuff on this. There were a lot of people, especially lately, that have argued that maybe these songs made uh, those who were enslaved made them a little bit more accepting of their condition. But then there was this one professor who argued that actually these songs were actually great songs of hope, that the the Christian faith that these slaves had embraced actually gave them hope for a better future, and these songs were a representation of that. And this song is, if you go through and you, you read all of it, it, it just talks about this idea that, that one day there, there will be a release from all of this, that, that the slavery that they're experiencing now one day will turn into freedom, maybe not, just, maybe not just in this life, but for sure in the next. 
that the separation and the anxiety they, they experienced as some of them, their families were torn apart and sold to different plantations, that there would one day be a great reunion, that the injustice that they had experienced at the hands of slave traders and, and landowners, that that injustice at one day would be dealt with. And it gave these slaves hope when they sang these songs that were reflective of the Christian faith. And this morning, I think that hope is absolutely essential for anyone who lives in this life and hopes to make it through, right? It's been said that you could live a few days without water, a few weeks without food, but you couldn't live one minute without hope. As we go through this morning and we talk about hope, I want you to understand that hope is a powerful force. Doctors will tell you that a person who has hope, that they can be a lot more effective in their treatment of them. In addition to that, you all know the stories we've looked at the past few Sundays. We've had Erica and Scott and we've had Jennifer and Teresa and we look at their stories and ultimately, those are stories of, of hope. You look at, if you know anything about Scott's background and you know the, the abuse and the addiction and the, and the you know, incarceration and things he experienced, his faith in Christ gives him hope that that does not have to define him or dictate his future, right? You look at Erica's story, and she had a brain tumor and was essentially told, you'll probably die, but she had hope that because her life was not just in the doctor's hands, but in the hands of God. Or you look at Teresa and Jennifer's stories and, and how they had tragic loss in their life, which gave them hope that this life is not all there is. There is something else, right? And if you believe in Christ, my big point for you this morning is that if we have faith in Jesus Christ, our faith gives us hope that there is more to live for. We said, as I started this series on struggles and the stories, that everybody in this life is going to struggle at some point. You're going to go through something difficult, something trying, something that frustrates you, something that angers you. And the question is, how will we deal with that? And one of the ways we're able to deal with that is that you and I know that there is a hope for a better future. And hope is essentially a, a confident expectation for a better future. Specifically for us, that means it's one that's brought about by God, not just by happenstance or luck or hard work, but a hope for a better future. And, and we think sometimes we have this misconception in, in, in our culture that hope is like maybe, maybe it'll happen. But the idea of biblical hope is, is a confidence and assurance that things will get better one day in this life or the next. That's the idea of biblical hope. And this is important for us to understand because hope, what you hope in, dictates how you live right now. It dictates the joy that you can have right now. What your ultimate hope is in dictates how you live and the joy that you can have now. I want to read from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. This is Paul, and this is one of his last letters. 
He is imprisoned. Uh, some scholars suggest that he is about to be uh, executed. And he writes this letter to Paul saying this, verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Now, as I was sitting there worshiping this morning, I was re- rereading this passage. And there's something that came up in this passage that just never, I'd never thought about before. Because some of us, we look at this and we see that Paul's final hope here, we say, hey, there's a crown of righteousness laid up for me in heaven. And so there's this hope that one day we're going to be rewarded for all the wonderful things that we have done as Christians. And if you know a lot about Christian theology, one of the things uh, that you begin to understand is that really um, all the good works that we do don't really amount to much. We will be rewarded to some sense, in some sense. But as I looked at this last sentence, I realized that Paul's ultimate hope is not necessarily those rewards in heaven or that crown of righteousness. Notice what he says here. And not to me only, but also all those who have loved, past tense, his appearing. And that gives me an indication of what Paul's ultimate hope was at death. His ultimate hope was to see Jesus. That was it. And I know some of you, unfortunately, may be disappointed by that. Because the problem is, we in this culture have put too much hope in things. This is the issue, and this is really the problem that I think dictates the, the fact that we're as comfortable in America as we have ever been. Okay, you know, you say, we just went through a pandemic and all that kind of stuff. But really, materially, how many of us in this room really lack for anything that we absolutely need? And we have so much more than we probably, that we probably don't need. Yet, you survey after survey tells us that people are more miserable today probably than they've ever been in America. Because what has happened is that we have put our hope in other things other than God. Rather than put our hope in God and the promise of His resurrection, the promise of an ultimate restoration of all things and a renewal of everything that we see that is wrong, rather than put our hope in the fact that one day He will come and set the world right, He will bring about justice and righteousness, rather than put our hope in those things, what we have decided to do is we put our hope in things like individual accomplishment, personal achievements, personal freedoms, or maybe we put our hope in, in uh, the discovery of our true selves. That's a big thing nowadays, right? We gotta, i, I got to find out who I really am. That's a huge issue. And, that, and here we are in the culture fiddling around trying to find fulfillment and hope. And, and listen, the thing about some of these things, and, and it's kind of difficult, especially the younger you are, the thing about some of these things is that they do bring some fulfillment. And some happiness and some sense of achievement and, and joy even. 
But the problem is this. They're underwhelming. How many times have you reached that, that plateau of achievement or you've reached that point in your life where, yeah, yes, this is, this is what I want to do. This is where I want to be, only to find out that the, the excitement of it, the, the, the fulfillment of it is just temporary. Or maybe it ain't what you thought it would be, right? You, you get the job you thought it would be, and then later on, two weeks later, you find yourself frustrated by that same job. Or you find the perfect person only to find out later they're not as perfect as you thought they were. And we've put our hope in those things. And again, what we have found is that they are underwhelming. And now here's what I, here's what I would suggest, and I get this from C.S. Lewis in his book on mere Christianity, is that your hopes, your desires, everything you long for is probably much deeper than you ever realized. Here's what I mean by that. I, I'm going to quote the, the great philosopher, philosopher. Uh, the great philosopher, Brad Paisley, all right? <laughs> y- y'all have heard of him. All right, he wrote a song called A Letter to Me. Y- y'all have probably heard this song. And, and the idea of the song is this, is, is a man, I would assume, probably in his mid-30s or you know, mid to late 30s, he's writing a letter to himself back when he was 17. And there's a, there's a, um, there's a line that, that is repeated a couple of times in that passage, and it says, I know at 17... It's hard to see past Friday night. Now, if you all remember when you were 16, 17 years old, 18 years old, listen, Friday night was it, right? I didn't have to go to school. I could live for what I was really made for, right? really made to go out and party, find a girl, do whatever. You know, if you're a girl, it may be a little different. Be with my friends, whatever. But I was really made for that. And if I could ever make it to Friday night, then everything will be awesome. And, and then you have this idea during the week, if I could just get through school, if I could get through this, and if you were, if I get through work, if I could just get to Friday night. And that was where your hope was. And as he's looking back and he's writing this letter to himself, the idea is, hey, there's so much more to life than Friday night. But living in that limited perspective as a 17-year-old kid, I can't see that. And it's no different with us today. There's so much more to live for. There's so much more to life than the things we spend our time and our effort trying to obtain. And if we could get to heaven and write a letter back to ourselves at that point and say, hey, here, listen, there's so much more to live for than just, you know, that good job. There's so much more to live for than just, you know, that perfect individual you'll never find. There's so much more to live for than all the things that the culture says you need. There's so much more to live for than just self-discovery, whatever that means. C.S. Lewis said like this. He talks about how that we'll go after, you know, the perfect wife, we'll travel, we'll, we'll become educated. And he says... And the wife may be a good wife. The scenery may have been excellent. Chemistry may be a very interesting job. But something has evaded us. We get all of those things, and still there's something missing. So not only are the things we go after in culture underwhelming, but the other thing is they're fragile. They're fragile. And here's what I mean by that. They don't take into account death. See, if your hope is in personal achievement, self-discovery, uh, you know, 
personal comfort, whatever. If your hope is in any of those things, death destroys every one of those things, don't it? And let me tell you a, a dirty little secret. You're going to die. Now, some of us don't think about it. We don't want to think about it. But one day you're going to die. And it won't matter how much money you earned or your personal achievements or any of those things. And see, this is the problem we have is that we put all of our energy, our time, all of our efforts into pursuing those things, don't we? Personal achievement and success and all that stuff. We, we, we put our hope in that. Only to find it underwhelming and to find it fragile. It's easily frustrated. And if anybody gets in the way, and this is the problem when, 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 when our hope is in those things, is anybody gets in the way of that, all of a sudden they become an enemy to us. And, and we start to treat people not as servants and, and kindly and, and good and, and try to you know, make a, the world a better place, essentially. But what we do is we, we treat them as an enemy. You're in the way of what I, my hope. But for the Christian man, the thing is death isn't the end of the story. See, we're all writing our story, and we have our hope, we have our goal, we have the climax of that story at some point in our life, not taking into account death, and if death occurs, that's the end of our story. But for the Christian, it's just part of the story. Death is not the end of our story. Our hope is in something that is far more stable, something far more eternal than anything this life offers. And that hope is what Paul wrote is what? Those who have loved his appearing. This is not something future. Yes, it is future in a sense, but it's not fully future because Paul had already experienced Christ in relationship. You and I have this opportunity now today to enjoy your deepest desire and hope, and that is to live in relationship with God. And again, unfortunately, many of us are disappointed by that because we don't think that would be enough. But He is more than enough. If you live in personal relationship with God, every hope and desire is fulfilled there. And here's a couple of things I just want to share with you that if your hope is in the right place, if you have the hope that Paul has, his hope is unquenchable. If you have that hope, there's a couple of things I want to show you from his life. So let's look at Paul's life real quick. Y'all know Paul. Paul is the greatest missionary the world has ever seen. He started out as a vehement enemy of the Christian faith. In fact, he sought to destroy the Christian faith. He imprisoned uh, Christians. He stood by as many of them were killed. And he said he made it his mission in his own letters. He made it his mission to stamp out the faith. That was his desire. Then one day, on the road to Damascus, he met Jesus Christ and everything changed. And the thing about this is Paul had absolutely nothing to gain by becoming a Christian and everything to lose. Now, if you go into the book of Philippians, he'll describe to you what kind of person he was before he met Jesus Christ. He says, I was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of Pharisees. 
I, I persecuted the church out of zeal for God and love for God that I thought. I, I, I had grand achievements and learning. And he goes through all this whole slew of things that he had done and who, what he was about. Worldly, we look at Paul and this in his circle of influence was a very successful man. He was respected. He had sat under the best teachers. He was probably a rich man. But then he goes on to say in Philippians, he said, but all the things that were gained to me. In other words, all the things I had put my hope and my confidence in never did it for me. But what things were gained to me, he said, those I counted loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord. He met Jesus Christ, and this man, because of his hope in Christ, turned the world upside down. You and I are sitting here today because of Paul's efforts. Christianity is the largest religion on the planet because this man was unflinching in his devotion to spread the message of the gospel as far and as wide as he possibly could. Why? Because he had a hope that went far beyond anything that this world has to offer you and me. We do not ever tap into our deepest desires. Paul said he counted all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord. He said, and I've suffered the loss of all things. He said, all those things that used to be important to me. I was a respected rabbi, a respected Pharisee. I had all the learning. He said, all those things I now count as dung that I may know Christ. That's his hope. How many of us this morning, that's our hope? To know Christ, to experience him, and to one day see him part that eastern sky and bring us to himself. We look at Paul's struggles if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he writes to us and he basically says, uh, talks to us about everything he went through. And if you know anything about Paul, you know this is a man who endured a tremendous amount in order to spread the gospel. But if you go to 2 Corinthians 11, he talks about how he labored more than anybody. He was beaten and imprisoned. He faced death on numerous occasions. One time, he was stoned to death. They drug his body outside the city and left it there. The Lord revived him. He went right back into the same city and started preaching again. He was shipwrecked, lost at sea. He said, I faced constant threats from thieves and robbers and people who had tried to kill me. Sleepless nights, hunger, deep concern and stress over the church. Paul endured all of that. But he had a hope that, that enabled him to do so. And that hope was Jesus Christ. And I would suggest to you that if we have hope like Paul's, hope that is put in the right place, it provides for us at least two things. One, endurance. It provides endurance. Remember, what you put your hope in determines how you live. See, I got a couple volunteers. Ty, you in here? All right, come up here. Jaden. 
all right? I asked them beforehand, so. I got, a, I got an illustration I want to show you about hope. Now, I want you to imagine why these boys are walking up here. Just imagine I have a factory, and in addition to what they do every other day, I say, now, look, I need six hours from you, okay? All right, y'all come just stand right here. And I, I say, look, six hours a day from you. What I want you to do is I got some sort of widget that I want you to screw into a wadget. It's boring. <laughs> but I need you to do that for six hours. You can take a 30-minute lunch break, but do that for six hours a day. However, at the end of six months, I'll give you $1,000. Okay? You don't seem real excited. <laughs> All right. But I come over to Ty. I say, look, I want you to do the same thing. Got a widget, screw into a wadget six hours a day in addition to whatever else you're doing. But at the end of six months, I'm going to give you $5 million. All right. Now, you don't see his face, but he's grinning. All right. Why is that? It's a hope, right? I look at Jaden here, and I say, look, I'm going to give you 1000 bucks, man. And he's like, is it really worth it? And let's say these guys, they sit down together, and they start talking. Their experiences. Now, doing the exact same thing, exact same conditions. I'm not got, you know, I ain't got his room hotter than his room or anything like that. It's perfect conditions. But they sit down together, and they have their meal together, and they start talking. I'm sure Jaden will be complaining. Oh, man, I don't know if I can do this. Six months is a long time, six hours a day to do this. I, I, I'm not going to do it. And what do you think he'll eventually do? He's going to quit. He's going to give up. He's done. You think he's going to quit? There ain't no way. Why, their hope is different. You see how your, your hope determines how you live. There's, he can endure. Because he knows at the end of this, there's $5 million awaiting me. He can actually enjoy it to some extent. As boring as the job may be, he could enjoy it. While Jaden's frustrated, Ty could be smiling. He's like, I'm good. Eat my lunch. Matter of fact, I'll leave lunch early and get started, you know. Now, this is how most of us live. We live like this. Going through struggles, going through life, we can hardly endure them. And we certainly don't find any joy in it. You know why? Because our hope is in the wrong thing. It's in the wrong place. Or either we forget the hope that we have in Christ. Y'all can sit down, thank you. Does everybody understand what I'm talking about here? And see, we have a hope in Christ that is far more uh, fulfilling, far deeper than any of us could realize. And too often we forget that. And we get frustrated and angry with life. And there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is when we stay there and we become bitter and we start treating people in the wrong way as a result of that. When you have the hope that Paul had, you can endure difficulty. You can endure loss. 
You can endure injustice and be able to forgive. Because when you know and you have a hope that when it's all said and done, God will set the world right and He will bring me to Himself and I will experience what I was really created for. All my problems would be solved. How many of you could raise your hand and say, if I had $5 million, many of my problems would be solved? At the end of this life, all the problems... Not just yours, but all the problems will be solved. It'll be set right. And that's where our hope lies. And that enables us to not only endure this life, but the other thing it allows us to do is to enjoy this life. Even in the midst of drudgery and frustration, I can have some joy because my hope is not just set here. I know that this, what I'm experiencing, is just temporary. Maybe in this life I'll get out of this sickness or whatever. But if not, I know I will in the next. You saw Ty's expression, or some of you may have saw Ty's expression when I said, hey, at the end of six months you get $5 million. Where is our joy like that? When we know when everything's said and done, it's going to be all right. I want to leave you with a couple of ways we can experience that kind of hope. The first one is this. Refuse to ignore your struggle, your pain, your difficulty, your frustration. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, this is from the ESV. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, So that in the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. How is it we will find hope in our struggles if we're not honest about those struggles? Or if we ignore them or pretend they don't exist? And I think this is probably one of the problems we see in a lot of Christian churches is that people want to pretend like everything's all right when it's not. Now, I'm not saying, again, y'all know how I am about this, but I'm not saying you go on Facebook and tell everybody your issues. What I am saying is that you have a reservoir, you have an opportunity to take your problems, your difficulties to God and be honest with God about them. Sometimes we think we have to be polite with God in prayer as if He doesn't know what's going on in our heart anyway. Imagine if you were in a Bible study and everybody kind of goes around the circle and they say a private prayer and somebody prays this, Oh, Lord, you misled me. And you allowed me, and I allowed myself to be misled. Lord, you're stronger than I am, and you overpowered me. In other words, you have bullied me. Now I'm mocked every day, and everybody laughs at me. What if somebody, what if somebody said that prayer out loud in one of your Bible studies or a small group? You'd be like, Dude, you need some help. <laughs> Wouldn't you? You're talking about God, you know, because we're supposed to pray like this. Oh, Lord, you're so awesome and glorious. And God, I love you. And God, you've just been so much better to me than I deserve. And that's the way you're supposed to pray. You're not supposed to pray like that. You know where that prayer comes from? The prophet Jeremiah. He's my favorite prophet. He said, Lord, you misled me. And I allow myself to be misled. God, you have bullied me. And now here I am. I look a fool in front of everybody. My my, my suggestion to you is if you want to experience hope is to deal with your struggle. Don't ignore it. 
Don't push it to the side. Don't pretend it doesn't exist. Don't be polite about it. Go to God and cast your anxiety upon Him. Don't plaster it on Facebook. Go to God and cast your anxiety upon God. Find, or you can even find somebody who is a, love, you know, a dear brother or sister in Christ and do that as well. But, you, you know, we call it, I think modern day, we call it processing. We have to process our pain and our frustration. We have to process this. But again, what some of those struggles do for us is they're a reminder, this world's not the way it's supposed to be but I know one day it will be. And Jeremiah was able to pray like that, but then in the next breath say, Lord, oh Lord, you are awesome. You are most excellent in all the earth. He was able to say, God, you have betrayed me, and then he was able to say, God, no one is for me but you, right? And sometimes we're kind of that way. We're kind of back and forth in our prayer to God, but that's fine. Process this with God. And the more you do that, the more your eyes are lifted to the eternal things, the things that are really important. If you look at Psalm 13, you can go back and read it later. David does this same thing. He talks about basically how that, you know, God, you have abandoned me. God, where are you? We've got to go through that kind of process. Here's the second thing. So refuse to ignore your struggle. But the second thing is to, to refuse to withdraw. So many times when we get in a hard situation, one of the reasons we can't find hope is because we withdraw, and you could do this mentally or you could do this physically, and you refuse to have anything to do with anybody else. You refuse to have anything to do with God, and you don't even pray, or maybe you come to church and you just sit there you know, and pretend everything's okay, but mentally you've, you've, you've pulled back. Do not do that, but refuse to withdraw like that. Reach out to God. Reach out to somebody you can trust and talk to them. Stay engaged mentally and spiritually. Here's what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you've learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace be with you. There's two things here. What you think or what you obsess over and what you do. See, too often when we are in the middle of a struggle, we're in the middle of a difficulty, that's all we obsess over. That's all we think on. And so we pull back from God, we pull back from everybody else, and we just start having a pity party and feeling sorry for ourselves. Refuse to withdraw. Stay engaged with God. Paul says, whatever things are good and pure and right and all this, think on those things. Put your mind on those things. Get into the Bible. Get into the Word of God. Get into a group of people that you can you know, cast your cares on as well, that you know will pray with you. And refuse to withdraw and focus just on yourself. But then he says, and these things that you have seen in me, do these things. And Paul does that right till the end. In the passage I read to you from uh, 2 Timothy, he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand, but I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. So not only do you stay engaged with God through prayer and those kinds of things, but the other thing you do 
is you keep doing what God's called you to do. And here's what that does for every one of us. If we find ourselves engaged, whether it's ministry inside the church, whether it's ministry at your job, whether you're trying to serve people you know, in the community, whatever it is, it's a reminder that the world's bigger than you are. So don't, don't withdraw, become self-obsessed about all your problems and difficulties, but put your eyes on God, His promises, and then stay engaged in the work of God. Keep doing what God's called you to do. Not to say that sometimes there's not a time you need to step back if you're volunteering in church or, you know, for, you know, if you, you know, for a while and kind of get yourself together and that kind of thing or take a break. God's all about rest. But that doesn't mean you stop being an ambassador for the Lord. It doesn't mean you stop looking for opportunities to serve and to minister to people in your workplace or wherever you happen to be. I hope this morning, and this is my prayer, that all of us will recognize especially if you're younger, A, how underwhelming the promises and the hopes of this life are, and B, how fragile they are, and that we'll, like Paul, put our hope in something much more stable, something that is beyond just this world. Amen?